This is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and we're not only running down the headlines, we're taking you inside the biggest state and local stories of the week. Illinois public health officials say another 25 people have died of COVID-19, and more than 1,300 cases of the virus have been reported in the past day. Following a spike in cases, U of I has disciplined over 100 students. Two have been suspended. Kenosha is still reeling, almost two weeks after the police shooting of Jacob Blake. The president was here on Tuesday. He toured the property damage left behind by the unrest. Mr. Biden says he came here to listen. This is the first chance we've had in a generation, in my view, to deal and cut another slice off institutional racism. That's right. The presidential campaign came to Kenosha and COVID-19 cases are on the rise, including an outbreak at the University of Illinois. Those are just some of the big stories we're talking about today with Maudlin Ihajerika. Chicago Sun-Times urban affairs reporter and columnist. Maudlin, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Also with us, Better Government Association President David Grising. David, welcome back. Thank you, Justin. Maudlin, Kenosha was the big story of the week. What do you make of the fact that a a city reeling from another police shooting of of a black man and the protests that follow has turned into a presidential campaign stop for both sides? When you have a high-profile police shooting, like the Jacob Blake incident, um, you know, against the backdrop of a nation that has been reeling from the apparent murder of George Floyd under the knee of a white police officer and the protest and uh, looting destruction that followed with a national reckoning on race that has affected every sector of American society from corporate sports to media, um, absolutely it is going to draw the presidential candidate, Mm -hmm. and it's going to turn into a presidential campaign stop for both because we're in the middle of such a hotly contested campaign. And, you know, it's sad, I think, um, certain elements of, of, of these visits, certainly when Trump visited the fact that there was no affinity for the victim and that there was a lack of uh, willingness to disavow the 17-year-old accused murderer of two protesters. That was very, very sad and spoke to the elements of this campaign that are that are troubling. And on, on Biden's end, it really, what you see is that lack of connection with the uh, law enforcement and um, those folks who, you know, see Trump as their quote-unquote mm-hmm. savior. It simply is the division, the, the huge division that we are facing right now in the nation. That's what we saw play out in Kenosha with the visit by these two presidential candidates. What we saw play out was their supporters, their segment of the population that they uh, – attract were the ones who were played to and the ones who turned out and the ones we saw and heard from most readily. 
David, there was lots made about this being a campaign stop, and, and it was interesting to see that this is the first time that a Democratic presidential nominee has visited Wisconsin since 2012. Obviously, they were going to have the DNC in Milwaukee, but plans change. It's hard not to be cynical if you're, say, a resident of Kenosha or someone who lives in the area that this isn't just political stuntery, if you will. Certainly, the political element comes into play. Uh, Wisconsin is one of the real toss-up states. Although, given what happened in 2016, it it would seem to possibly be more likely in President Trump's uh, corner at this point. It is against that backdrop that both of those trips took place. And while because we've had so many of these incidents, I think that both President Trump and Joe Biden were very well aware that they weren't just performing to a local audience, that they were speaking to this much larger problem. Certainly, Vice President Biden and his remarks at um, Grace Lutheran Church in Kenosha, he was going really wide and big on this. And he needs to, because President Trump's message clearly is resonating to his base. His law and order message is clearly motivating his base. Standing behind Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old shooter, uh, saying, yeah, it looked like if he didn't, he might have been killed himself. It definitely plays his base. And, and Biden is just trying to draw as sharp a contrast as he possibly can, because this is that moment when people are really paying attention at a level maybe it hasn't happened until now. And David, early in this week, video of yet another black man, David Prude, who was from Chicago, dying at the hands of police, this time in Rochester, New York. And this happened back in March. One thing I would say, I think about this Prude case, uh, Justin, thank goodness for video cams. Thank goodness for uh, iPhones and and other phones that can take video, because that's such a big part of what has changed the discussion here. It used to be that when the cops wanted to cover up something like the Prude uh, killing, they were able to do that. They would have done that in that in the Rochester case, except for the fact that these tapes came out. Mm -hmm. And as disturbing as many of the other tapes that we've seen have been, that one is really stomach turning if you watch it, if you force yourself to sit and watch that. Just as with George Floyd, where we had to force ourselves to sit and watch for eight minutes while a man died before our very eyes. It really shows you the brutality of what goes on on the streets. Uh, Some of these episodes have shown us why cops feel as defensive as they are. These things move fast, and there's a lot of danger there. We have to be sympathetic to them as well. But some of this is just outright brutality on the part of police, and to see it is so different than hearing conflicted versions about it. And that's what I think is really changing the public conversation. Absolutely. You know, um, this particular case is as traumatizing as the George Floyd tape, if not more so. And what we're seeing is a understanding that this sort of racism that seeps into policing in America that is based in a lack of empathy or seeing someone as a human being. It really is a dehumanizing act um, that we are watching, just as in George Floyd. It is being carried out clearly without any understanding or acceptance that they are dealing with another fellow human being. I say that so strongly because what we are seeing are what has been happening for years, for decades, and what we are only now coming to see and understand as a public health crisis 
simply because of the onset of cell phones and the videos coming out. Now, we've had so many of these cases prior to these two, and, and they did not. They did not trigger a reckoning on police brutality. But these two, as David very adequately pointed out, this is, this is traumatizing. You have to force yourself to watch it. And if you are able to force yourself to watch it, it is what has driven Americans of every race, of every color, of every gender, of every walk of life to hit the streets and say, we can't go on like this. So, yes, Justin, this is, this is not going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg, and we must understand that. We're only seeing those that have been captured, those that we are being allowed to see. Otherwise, it would continue on unabated. This nation has a problem with policing. And we in Chicago know this story very well. We had it with Laquan McDonald where it took uh, injunctions to get video released to show the video, which conflicted with the police reports. In right. Rochester, it's the same thing again. We're, we're, it's year, the, the police chief told the mayor in that situation uh, he dry, died of a drug overdose. Nothing to see here. And then it takes, <laughs> what, five months later for the video to come out, and, and it's entirely different and, and in contrast to what the police said in the beginning. David, that also has to be a concern if you are going to go with the storyline that, that, you know, that bad apples or, or it happens once in a while here. Then why, why is a system, especially when we're talking about body cams, still weak in the way that it takes months to get these videos to the public? There's a bigger question that you're touching on here, Justin, which is very important. You know, at the, at the BGA, we fight for open records all the time, and sometimes people think that's kind of wonky, kind of we're in the weeds with public policy stuff. This is what the fight about transparency is all about, to see how things happen out on the streets in, in any aspect of government. Just see how things really happen. See the records that are made in real time. A videotape of an event on the street like this, of a killing on the street, is a public record. And so when we're fighting for public records, and this is what all journalists do, and a lot of other people who believe in good government do this, is they fight for public records not because they're wonky and they think we have a right to public records, because we're trying to find out what really happened Mm -hmm. here. And we have a thing, as you say, this was buried. This was dead and gone. If there weren't videotapes of the Prude case in, in Rochester, nobody would ever know about it. And who knows how many cases like that are out there in police departments of big cities. There are probably many others. And that's what's, that's what's so terrible. And I think to Maudlin's point about how people from all walks of life are now signing on to this movement, I think that's, that's the reason we realize that what's being done in our names on the streets by people who are public servants and are there to serve and protect, supposedly, what's being done in our name is something we do not want to be associated with. And the only way to really find out is through seeing these videotapes and finding out what goes on. Yep. It's David Grising. He leads the Better Government Association. Also with us uh, here on WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup is Maudlin E. Hedgerica from the Chicago Sun-Times. Let's shift gears and talk about some of the other big state and local stories you should know about this week. Chicago is facing a staggering $1.2 billion budget gap for 2021. Currently, this year, there's an $800 million shortfall. This disease has forced a seismic disruption of our economy. Illinois Republicans are forming a special committee to investigate House Speaker Michael Madigan. It is the first step in a long process that could lead to discipline or even expulsion of the state's most powerful politician. Maudlin, let's talk a little about COVID-19. The University of Illinois had all kinds of testing, rules, 
and what looked like an innovative solution to keep the virus at bay, and they still had an outbreak on campus. I have to tell you, I just don't um, really know what the answer is, because it seems to me we have been seeing over and over it proven that there is no safe way to bring students together. Universities across the country, Alabama, we've just had some really staggering um, outbreaks in the immediate upon the return of students and teachers to campuses across the nation. And, and so Illinois' campuses are certainly not immune. You know, we were all saying, well, you know, they've done everything. Let's see what happens. And boom, immediately you have this. Right. I'm afraid to, 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 to sound uh, the alarm, but I really don't at this point believe that there is going to be a safe way to do this. And I think that there needs to be some acceptance here. Yeah. David, this story is going to continue, and it seems like it's it's at the top or near the top of every week's list because we're living through a global pandemic. Uh, this next week will be a big one, too, because uh, the CPS uh, starts back up on Tuesday, and the teachers' unions already fielding complaints from, from their members around the city as they return to schools to get ready for being in the classroom while they're doing remote. So their concerns are, are valid, and how, how's the city responding? This is going to be a story next week. And sort of where where the fight is taking place a little bit has to do not just with teachers, but with uh, support personnel. And the Chicago Teachers Union is saying, you know, people like school clerks or tech people or clinicians or maybe even security people don't all need to actually be on the premises. CPS is pushing back very hard on that, saying, you know, a school clerk has to be there to take in forms and and to to deal with the students. Absolutely, you can see why this is such a big deal. Um, As we're seeing at the University of Illinois, when people go back and congregate in concentrated areas like this, the number of the case count ends up rising. And teachers in the Chicago system and across the country are saying, I don't feel like I ought to be obligated to go and put my health at risk in order to teach people when we do have this alternative out there. And that will continue to be something that's talked about uh, throughout the course of this disease, I think. Uh, this week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot laid out the state's, uh, the state of the city's finances. Chicago is looking at a projected $1.2 billion budget gap for 2021. Put that on top of an $800 million deficit for this year, $2 billion. Maudlin, it's, I don't even know how to even start this part of the conversation because uh, that number is so daunting I'm not sure how the city digs out of it. I'm not sure either. This is a mind-boggling situation when those sorts of numbers are put out there, when you understand the impact of COVID-19 on a municipal budget that was already straining to fill, to fill huge holes. I don't know how they dig out of it. I think that we've all got to brace for some serious, serious budget splashing some serious uh, decimation of services, and quite frankly, most likely, some serious uh, taxes. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. It's property taxes. I mean, David, it's a, it's a death knell for politicians to be talking about taxes. Maybe it's changed because we're in a global pandemic, but to say that uh, property taxes aren't off the table after historic increases in property taxes for, for uh, the city in the last couple of years, I don't know where else you're going to do it because tax revenues, and this is the big part of the story, tax revenue, you can tax tourism, you can tax uh, parking lots, you can tax professional services, whatever you want to do, but those channels of revenue aren't producing anything. Well, right. You try to tax tourism. When there is no tourism, there's no tourism to tax. Navy Pier is closed. 
because nobody's going to Navy Pier, the number one tourist destination in the state. And so that's part of the problem that the mayor is dealing with, is that the revenue sources are way, way down from what had been expected. Just in the first quarter, the city was down $25 million from its prior projections. And so this, these numbers are really big. The troubling part is that some of the ideas the mayor is throwing out there also are not going to really help very much. You know, she mentioned like the casino, the new casino. Well, mm-hmm. there's no new money is going to come from the casino in the 2021 budget. She mentioned TIF money. Of the $300 million that could be raised, only like a quarter of that actually could go to the city. And so her options for raising money are very limited in an economy like we're, we're facing. And so in addition to the fact that this $1.2 billion gap is so huge, uh, the, the resources at her disposal are going to be very hard to find. You've got to raise income. There is absolutely no way to get around it with a budget hole this big. How do you even begin to wrap your mind around it? So, you know, absent a significant influx of federal funding that can bring this number down, we're all looking at, 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 at new taxes. Maudlin, I want, I want to talk sure. about uh, Speaker Madigan. This story where Republicans filed, which essentially was a loophole, is a, a good parliamentary procedure to to essentially set up a committee uh, mm-hmm. to investigate the Speaker over uh, any wrongdoings with the dealings with ComEd. i got to be honest, I, I've never seen the statement so sharp-tongued from, from Speaker Madigan about uh, you know Leader Durkin and, and, and the concept of what it, who pays you. It just seems to me like um, this is a, a very strong move by Republicans to an, an election year to put the chairman of the Democratic Party under investigation in the House. I think I, I have to disagree with you because we saw these exact sorts of maneuverings occur at the behest of Speaker Madigan during the Blagojevich yeah, um, era. And so Speaker Madigan very much led the charge to do end runs to uh, divest Blagojevich of authority as this case was was moving uh, toward uh, resolution and in the end uh, to ensure that he did not benefit in any way. And so Speaker Madigan has been very, very strong um, in the past about uh, making sure that those who are accused of wrongdoing, particularly uh, the most egregious incidents, um, such as is being laid out in the comment filing, are not allowed to continue to participate in, in leading our state. Yeah, that's, and so that's great. I will say to you that I disagree and believe that turnabout is fair play. Yeah, I was going to say, taste of his own medicine. David Grising, the, the thought of, of Republicans uh, wanting to form a special committee to investigate uh, Mike Madigan. The trick in the state house has always been, how do you force something like this when Mike Madigan doesn't want it to happen? How do you force something to happen in the General Assembly? Because Mike Madigan's, one of his controls on power has always been the extent to which he completely controls the agenda. And Jim Durkin, the uh, the minority leader of the House, he may have figured out a way around Madigan here. And uh, the fact that Madigan has recused himself and seems to be stepping aside and handing this over to Greg Harris, uh, the majority leader, uh, seems to indicate this process is going to move forward. Now, Madigan is putting some warning shots out there. (laughs) Be careful, Mr. Durkin. What does your personal record show, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think Durkin's going to care a whit about that. Durkin would probably be willing to sacrifice himself if he thought he could lead an effort that actually, you know, takes power away from Mike Madigan. And so... um, 
this is going to be quite interesting. Madigan obviously feels cornered because he doesn't employ, he doesn't make threats like that publicly unless he's really cornered. Right. Uh, that will, of course, uh, be a story that we will be following, as, as well as all the stories that are covered by our guests today. Uh, David Grising of the Better Government Association and Maudlin E. Head Jerica from the Chicago Sun-Times. You guys, thanks so much for joining me today and uh, breaking down the week in news. Appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Goodbye. Nice working with you, Maudlin. And that's WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. Let us know what you think. What do you like? What do you don't like? We want to bring you the best in-depth rundown of the week's news, but we want to do it so it fits the way that you listen. So send us your suggestions at reset at WBEZ.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll catch you back here Tuesday.